This is Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. You're listening to The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st, sanitarymagazine.com. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Seat and relax. I'm your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of yet. Hold on to yourselves, boys and girls. This is going to be a dark ride. We leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Welcome back to the Wicked Library. Today's show is a double feature with two tales to terrify by Jessica McHugh. Stay tuned after the stories. Jessica's dying to tell you a few secrets herself. <laughs> sure we are of the world around us, how permanent it seems. We walk its surface wrapped in our routine, sure of who we are, and comforted by the familiar faces we see every day. We know with certainty that tomorrow will arrive, that spring will blossom into summer, and that the face we see in the mirror tomorrow will be the same one we see there today. In truth, there is no guarantee of any of these things. Of Human Symphonies You thought there'd never be a time when you couldn't hear the crickets. Alas, your little harps, the most crucial of night's voices, vanished without a fitting finale. The fire roared over their nests, and an abrupt squawk left you waiting, both of you, hoping to hear one bow upon one string just one more time. But there was only the yawning silence and the thinning of your earthly tethers. They dissolved completely with the man's hush, and the world became a stranger. As you sit now on the crater's edge, your bare feet tickled by snaking smoke, you see no reason for reintroduction. The sky confirms the end is near. It speaks in whirling reds and falling stars and blasts of heat and chill that cast clammy goose flesh warnings across your body. You shiver, a tremor of nausea and delight you wish to remember with the pond and its crickets. With the man and his secret. But you're afraid memory won't cross over with you. You need something more tangible. It is impossible to compare sitting here, watching the planet surrender, for those nights when you and the man sat at the pond and marveled at the eternity crackling between you, like a secret life spawned by the magnetism of your diverse souls. You felt new, 
awkward in your flesh like it was something you'd have to grow into, and no one should see you until that magical day. But the man didn't treat you like that. He said you fitted just fine. He patted the bank beside him, and you sat, skin tighter already. The texture of the man's hands disturbed you. That dry, almost brittle feel that made you doubt you were the same species. You thought you had more in common with the crickets, making music, hiding from the world under rocks and green bladed nests to plot the next masterpiece. You recoiled from his touch, afraid of catching whatever disease had turned him from soft flesh to crinkled paper. He chuckled at your ignorance in a laugh of lilting notes as beguiling as the cricket song. He explained the only disease was life, and all people fall prey. So please, don't be afraid to touch him, to touch others, to soften against hugs and kisses, to learn what it is to be loved, because love is the only cure for life. And though no one can survive the disease, with enough love... One can become okay with letting life win in the end. You process this slowly, comparing every available inch of you to every available inch of him. The man was a magic mirror that sharpened his exploration into a reflection of this ugly truth. You will grow taller, child. You will grow older, craggier, and yes, you will die. The crickets, too. The fish in the pond, even the pond itself, will dry up or fill in. You didn't expect it to become a smoldering pit in the earth back then. But you often spoke of how it might happen, or rather, listened to the man's theories. For they evolved in the most beautiful ways over the weeks. His words were fearfully mortal, changing to suit the increasing danger in his mounting acceptance. It started with biblical tales about the four horsemen fire and brimstone and the torturous howls of death. But the more the planet tilted, the more his stories changed. They broadened beyond the apocalypse of his parents, of friends, of his children and grandchildren, and reached out to yours. You stitched your folklore from threads of stolen imagination, of far-off places where skin never changed and favored places never dissolved. The man pinched your cheek, he nodded and smiled, and you could consider your stories adopted, as plausible as the harbingers of his revelation. The protesters scolded these discussions and shooed you away with ledgers, but he held you tight and pointed them houseward. He said that some people are stuck in their ways, and that true beliefs never change until the end. It made him happy to tell you this, you suspected, because he knew he wouldn't live long enough to be proven wrong. And those who did live to see the end wouldn't live to boast about it. So, what was the harm in agreeing with your theories about aggressors from other dimensions? It made you both so happy in those final days, even after the stars started falling. The pond went, the crickets followed, and the protesters got louder. The man died the day after the crickets. It broke his heart knowing he wouldn't hear them one more time before the end. That he hadn't hummed along enough. That he'd never stood on the pond's edge and shouted, Thank you, friends, for tirelessly voicing the night. It was too quiet. The cricket should have been there to sing him to a better place. When the world juddered and burned, when the dimensions collided and sent every chromosome a flutter, he should have been able to live as that cricket music for a moment. Hell, anyone should have. You wondered if the man and the crickets would end up in the same afterlife. And whatever that was, heaven, reincarnation, nothingness, you hoped his mind would be somehow rewound. You hoped he would be transported back to a time of soft fingers and creaseless smiles before he knew you, before you gave him those creases, those paper hands, and hair that turned from sand to snow all in your brief time together. In reminiscing, you realize his hands hadn't disturbed you the first hour you met. That night when you stumbled nameless from the shadows and a strange man on the edge of the pond gave you a name. His hands had been nearly as soft as yours when he beckoned. They were paler, perhaps, with more rough patches, 
but the years did not roadmap them like they did on that last day. With his flesh as thin as cricket wings, the man asked you to lean against him. You did, and the outcry came like always, but the man looked over his shoulder and waved at the protesters, then cradled your head. They will not hurt you, he called you out from hiding and assured you repeatedly. They will not hurt you. You are my boy from the stars, and they will not hurt you. He told you he had a secret, a secret he made a wish for. And here you were, the gift of knowing he would never be alone again. They hate me now, but they won't for long, he said, nodding to the protesters. I love them so much, and they love me too. They'll remember that before the end, before you call them. He aged ten years in those four words, before you call them. He confused you. Confusion fueled much of your time together, and you can only see now how lucky you were. If you had seen with clarity the fate in your bones, imagine how much sadder your memories would be. He was dying when he said he felt alive. He said you opened his mind to dimensions he'd never dreamed of, that you gave him knowledge no one else could, and reasons to keep pondering the mysteries of life. All because the sky opened one night, and the stars couldn't hold you. But one day, they'll miss you, he said, and I'll have to let you go before you call them. He saw the unclearer than you. The man said his piece, and as he breathed final words, you wondered what this all meant. Did it mean anything at all? And would you ever have a secret as beautiful as this one? You would. You do. But you didn't know it until the sky flashed with blood and gravity lost its foothold. The atmosphere of worlds caught fire and stars rained down upon you with knowledge. No, memories of your mission. The world would shift soon and the dimensions would be pliable. You had only to wait for the rift to appear. He touched your face. Your skin was loose again and it had made the man laugh through a frown. This is fine, he said. This is better. And my children, my grandkids, they'll be better too, won't they? You didn't know for sure, but you expected a less than sunny end. Maybe his family saw it in your eyes, even when you couldn't, and the way you changed him. He was right to hide you from them. The protesters could never understand. They feared you, called you disease and demon. But the man swore on every sunset you were an angel. You gave him purpose. You gave him company with the crickets and assured him that greater, more magical realms existed beyond this one. Surely, one's fortune didn't matter there. And no one would feign love to snatch it up. There would be no mourning there. No jealousy. No secret ills to sneak a death sentence into one's mourning mush. He would have ended up under a sheet beside the pond anyway. Now it's on his terms. He had a secret and he made a wish. And then came the boy from the stars. The man's family is trying to kill you. They drag you from the crater's edge and you scream. You call for the man. You call for his help. You call and call, but the man's son's fingers are like rocks crushing your windpipe. It's so soft, so vulnerable. It's such a bad design. The lights go out and all you hear is whistling. The end is coming. The whistle becomes a screech that culminates in a fiery blast as a hunk of rock crashes into the man's house. The impact blasts you and the protesters apart, and you squirm, aching in the charred yard. His family moans. Your family steps through the rift. You don't recognize them at first, but they know you through your soft pink costume, through the clenched ivory stones in your mouth, and the wisps of fur curling over your eyes. They approach, touch your mask, and say, We heard your call. Your family is none too pleased with the attempted murder of their emissary. But they don't bother killing the man's family. It'll come soon enough. The protesters gather their smoldering riches for escape. 
but by the time they're in the yard again, they realize the futility. The sky ablaze, the human race dissolving, what good are metals and pin numbers now? They fall beside the pond, beside the man under the sheet and mourn him at last. It won't save them, and you don't pity them, but you do wish they had the crickets to aid their deaths. Everyone deserves a final symphony. It's time to go home and grab the best seat in the house. But first, before they're all gone forever, you must take a detour to the next town, to the next state, to the closest pond or cricket nest. If the man were here now, he could tell you where they are, hiding under rocks, plotting final masterpieces, but you'll have to wait to ask him that question. You feel like the answer will have you kicking yourself after running so far across the flats to the north of the man's blazing house. But it's worth it the moment you find them. Two chirping crickets you nestle safely in a jar. You wonder if the man will still love them after the crossover, or if he'll feel like the cricket in your home, admired but trapped in a glass-covered afterlife. You hope it won't come to that, however. You hope he remembers he loves you, that he'd pine for the greater, more magical realms through the dimensional rift. You hope he will not hate you for your mission. Despite its violence, it created the two of you. And God's willing, the friendship will grow in new soil. You will always treasure your time in that world, but it will never compare to watching the whole thing, blood, water, rock, wither like the man's hands. It will pale first, then shrink slightly, and select divots and jutted countries will ooze with flabbed land. The oceans and ice will go first, followed by vegetation like clusters of Christmas lights dying color by color until the globe is dark and dry and cracking from surface to core. It will take days, a week at most, but you will behold every beautiful deconstruction from the edge of your pond. The man will not delight as you do, but you hope he will forgive you when the paper fist called Earth collapses under its obsolescence. And two crickets voice the night. This is Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I'd be very mad otherwise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or am I? <laughs> Tarnished Treasures Discovery Island Pier issues a relic's warning. Barney the Boatman assures Libya the dock is safe, but his sloppy countenance doesn't inspire much credibility. Even obscured by the foggy shield of his hazmat suit, he looks like a man who spent most of his life clinging to others instead of learning the demands of real life. Things like diligence, ingenuity, and good hygiene. Livia surmises it's why he's alone now, spending his night shuttling trespassers to the abandoned theme park across Bay Lake. But he works cheap, and the Floridian Rescue Squad has no other option. Livia nods and disembarks Barney's John boat. Rickety as it is, there's a romance in the pier. It has accommodated dozens of conservationists and urban explorers since the Disney Island attraction's closure in 1999. And it'll hold Livia too. At least until her great work is complete. She marches across the pier to solid ground, where she unzips her safety hood and inhales the mildewed air. Punched lampposts flank the dock, with the final set setting like sentries to oblivion. Their halos barely illuminate the sign ahead. Green slime thinly coats the wooden slab, except for intermittent swipes, like tongue prints from someone hungry for the words, River Country is Closed. It's an ominous welcome to a world where lanterns die and a jungle night reigns supreme. 
Ditto finally strides over the creaking planks. His massive frame blinks out the lampposts as he approaches Livia. A tranquilizer gun leaned against his right shoulder. The former Marine is the same size as the boatman, but Ditto has more command over his body. Even more apparent when Philip Trainer meekly trails behind him, his horn-rimmed glasses slipping down the bridge of his nose. Ditto taps Philip's face shield with a smirk. You sure we can ditch these suits? He asks the boatman. What about radioactive mosquitoes and killer beavers? No danger but the bacteria in the water. Nigleria folere. Barney waves his palms over Bay Lake, as if conjuring the deadly bacteria to the surface. Besides, the park's wildlife was mostly avian, and they were transported to the animal kingdom years ago. Why do you run a shuttle if the island's abandoned? Philip asks as he unzips his hood. A man's got to make a living, right? When the park closed, I found myself with two choices. Continue my work on the Disney mainland, or start a new career. Something squawks, and the noise echoes from the jungle to the pier. Livia's skin stiffens with goosebumps, and Ditto rolls his gaze to Barney. Abandoned, huh? The boatman shrugs. You have an hour, though I don't see the point. No one saw the point in protecting the dusky seaside sparrow until it went extinct on this island, Livia says. Such rarities must be protected. Philip distributes infrared headlamps, and geared up, Livia Morgan proudly leads the Floridian Rescue Squad toward Flamingo Lagoon. The boatman chuckles as they depart. He's seen their crusading ilk before, but Livia supposes he's never seen one so valiant or so determined to change the world's attitude toward animals forever. Her arms swing like warnings against the dark, but her blood runs cold. Even with the headlamp, she has a limited view of her surroundings. And the farther the squad ventures from the dock, the louder Discovery Island's cloisters become. A militia of birds and bugs hide in the surrounding bush, whistling, chattering. But the din fades when Livia shines her light across the trees. They're so heavy with overgrowth they resemble octogenarians hunched by the weight of tarnished treasures. But there's not a single glinting eye, not one talon or fang among the lot. Philip pants as he catches up to Livia. You okay? She asks. He nods. This place is just too loud to be so empty. It makes me queasy. Ditto snickers. (laughs) What a chicken. He points at a rotted sign with the words Avian Way and faded white paint. Hey, maybe we'll find one of your relatives down this path. Ditto's headlamp illuminates the precarious monkey bridge stretching a yard above a marsh, but he doesn't move. Livia scoffs. Who's chicken now? He grunts and steps onto the bridge. The impact ripples through the squeaky planks, inciting a dangerous sway, but he continues steadily on. He steps methodically over absent slats and moldering holes, and Livia follows his path. On the last plank, she leaps triumphantly forward, Jumping was stupid. The other side, though solid, is slick with swamp water and algae. Livia's feet fly out from under her. Time doesn't allow her to contemplate whether the swamp water is as toxic as Bay Lake. Only this one thought. No one will know all the great things I've done. She's surprised when she's caught. More so when she realizes Philip is her savior. His glasses dangle on the precipice of his nose as he stabilizes her. The lenses fogged with exertion. Ditto claws a spiderweb from his face. Nice catch, chicken. I would have lent a hand, but my shoulder's sore. Must be the weather. Satisfaction flashes across Philip's lips, but a dry cough blasts it away. He clears his throat and fans his face. Damn jungle. The untamed shrubberies and walls of webbing prohibit the squad from moving at their normal pace. They tiptoe through Avian Way, past rusted rows of broken cages and perches until they reach a mass of gnarled vines. The gates of greenery form a dome, like a natural birdcage around Pelican Bay, which is little more than an arid chasm now. Beyond it, a weathered wooden sign barely stands. Several letters are missing from the employees-only sign, leaving a portentous ploy in chapped paint. 
They exchange anxious glances and march to the entrance of the Discovery Island employee barracks. With their headlamps focused inside, the squad scans the dark. But just as Livia catches the subtle gleam of eyes, Philip's abrupt coughing fit sends the enigmatic creature into retreat. Livia growls and pushes past the men into the barracks. Except for the spiders, the decaying box looks empty, but she desperately sweeps her light across the lockers and dilapidated bunk beds anyway. She lifts overturned chairs and kicks aside piles of clothing in search of an animal, any animal, for her to rescue. Hey, check this out. Chick on top's pretty hot. Ditto hands Livia a stack of photographs and returns to a line of corroded lockers. Buoyant curls frame the young woman's faded, heart-shaped face. It's tilted slightly, smiling at the majestic macaw balanced on her forearm. She holds the bird at chest height, blocking out everything but crisp on her Discovery Island name tag. Other employees, dressed in matching tan button-downs, populate the next few pictures, joyfully tending and displaying animals. But one picture stops Livia's flipping, and she holds it closer to her face. The man's lab coat is too small and accentuates his slipshod frame but Livia would recognize his careless presence anywhere. She shakes the photo. It's Barney! Ditto leans over, dabbing a fresh crop of sweat from his face. The boat guy? He said he used to work here, but I assumed he was a guard, not a scientist. Maybe he borrowed the coat from a real scientist. Ditto nudged Philip, whose body jerked with a sudden attack of sputters and wheezes. Jeez, man, what's up with you? You allergic to idiocy or something? He apologized between coughs and rushed outside to spit up some phlegm. Livia pouted. Idiocy? Yeah, like this mission, he said. We haven't seen a single animal live. But the noises... I'm starting to think the boat guy's messing with us. The noises could be recorded. Window dressing so people like us will keep coming. Like he said, the man's gotta make a living... She tosses the photos back into the rusted locker, then spots the other pictures haphazardly strewn through the rot. Another photo catches her eye, and not because of the boatman. Tracks of dried blood run from the nostrils of the woman in the photograph. Her jaw is slack. Her blackened tongue hangs limp. Her hair is frazzled, where it still sprouts between patches of blood-speckled baldness and her face is drawn to the point of looking cartoonish, like taffy melting in the sun. She'd think it was, if not for the name tag, declaring Christina from her emaciated breast. As she shuffles through the sticky pictures, the girl becomes harder to recognize. The stack is now a flipbook of her degeneration. Her skull outgrows her flesh. Panels of skin dangle from her neck and her right eye hangs from the socket resting against her bare cheekbone Livia's gasp burns as she drops the photos Philip is sweating profusely as he and Ditto bend over her he apologizes when perspiration drips onto her hand and Livia wipes it on her pants Ditto toes the photos damn that chick got real ugly must have been that water bacteria. First case, maybe. Maybe. Philip's sweat drips again, and Livia groans. For the love of... She starts to wipe off her hand when she realizes the droplet is black in the red light. Her gaze shoots up to Philip, and her headlamp eerily illuminates his haggard face. His eyeballs are stippled with burst blood vessels, and a thin crimson stream rolls from his left nostril. Livia leaps to her feet and tugs Ditto away as Philip shuffles toward them rigidly, one arm shakily outstretched, the other hand pounding his chest. He wheezes. He coughs. Then, with a gurgling roar, Philip disgorges a fountain of reeking clotted phlegm. Livia screams as she darts away, leaving Philip to collapse on the doorframe. He convulses as he sputters up blood caterwauling with each surge of reeking vomit that paints the door. With a strained growl, he dashes from the employee barracks into the island night. 
Livia lunges to follow him, but Ditto latches onto her arm. Don't. We don't know how contagious the bacteria is, Liv. He could infect you. Somewhere in the darkness, Philip screams for help, each beg more guttural than the last. Other noises soon follow, screeches and squawks around the din of breaking branches. I don't care. We can't leave him. Ditto grips her arm tighter, and she squeals at the increasing pressure. His body suddenly lurches, and he expels a wet hack that speckles Livia's face in moisture. She shrieks and wrenches her arm free, but Ditto's fingers remain clamped to her wrist, even as she falls to the floor. Ditto's face blanches as he gawks at his empty shoulder socket spurting blood, but it's a bottle rocket compared to the gruesome explosion that follows. A fuzzy appendage, jellied in gore, bursts from the opening, crooking into an insectiform limb. Ditto howls as his face loses its integrity and chunks of wet flesh ooze down his splitting skull. He pleads for help as he shuffles to Livia, but she can do nothing but tear his hand free and sprint from the employee barracks. She is alone now, yet Discovery Island disputes this by the second. As she races over the rickety monkey bridge back to the pier, gleaming eyes appear in her periphery. Carcophonous jungle madness surrounds her, and her brain boils with terror. Just as she emerges from avian way, her foot skids on the mud. She sails forward. She squeezes her eyes closed through her pain, but the sound of shuffling steps pops them open again. Livia's gaze crawls up the spindly legs in front of her. They're decidedly bird-like, but the creature's furry body is mammalian. It's like nothing she's ever seen. But when her eyes reach the animal's face, the horned-rimmed glasses balanced on its blood-splattered beak strike her all too familiar. She squeaks. Philip! He hisses and stamps his claw in the mud, heralding the appearance of deformed faces in the shadows. Some are patched with ratty fur and mismatched fangs, while other creatures possess hooked tortoise snouts that snap at Livia their claws clasping and wings flapping. You're late. Livia focuses beyond the creature, and the boatman grins at her from behind his foggy hazmat suit. He points at Philip and nods. He's coming along nicely, and I see our strongman's a little different, too. She stands cautiously, looking over her shoulder at a human-insect hybrid with a rifle strap draped over its shoulder. She claps her hands to her lips and wails. Oh my god, ditto, she mules. What's going on, she demands of the boatman. What are these things? Isn't it obvious? They're animal lovers, just like you. Pangs strike Libya's stomach, and she doubles over. I'm an animal lover myself, just not your typical cranes and lemurs. I like my zoos a bit more extraordinary. He continues. The Home Office fired me for my great work with genetic mutation, but they couldn't stop it. I'd already been testing on the employees without their knowledge. I learned a lot from them, but I soon ran out of subjects. Then the park closed and the conservationists came. Oh, how I welcomed them. Livia coughs up a fistful of blood. The water. You created the bacteria. He chuckles. No, the Nigleria fullaria occurs naturally. My work is more exceptional than that. It's not fatal, and it's not in the water. My bacterium is airborne. Livia's throat sears with a desiccating fire that shreds the soft tissue in every breath. Air turns to fluid, and the copper stench of death jumps from her throat as she sputters blood. She claws her neck as she struggles for one thin breath between gluts of gore. But it doesn't come. Until her neck stretches. Her ligaments and vertebrae split as they expand, and the muscles in Livia's neck elongate. Her vision sharpens, revealing a view of the world she'd only seen from the tops of ladders and soapboxes. Though the air flowing freely down her gullet steadies Livia, 
a new swell of pain also finds its footing. When she steps forward, her left leg breaks at the knee, followed by the right. Her calves split open, and the flesh sags inward from lack of necessity. Her skin falls around her as she strides forward, a superior beast stepping out of an old ideal. Tiny physiological changes occur with every breath taken by the creatures trapped on Bay Lake. A new wing, a fresh panel of scales. Barney's eyes glimmer as he admires his creations. Miraculous, isn't it? And perfect for an animal lover. My bacterium causes constant mutation, so you'll never be a complete being again. You will always be something new, something exciting. The animals of Discovery Island writhe in blood and bone as Barney the scientist grins. I think you'll agree, Miss Morgan. Such rarities must be protected. Today's episode featured two tales by Jessica McHugh of Human Symphonies and Tarnished Treasures. Tarnished Treasures will be featured in an upcoming issue of the Dreadful Geographic Ezine. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. I hope you enjoyed today's stories. I'm Dan Foytek, and I'm your new host for Season 6. I'm looking forward to bringing you some great stories from some of your returning favorites like Jesse Saxon, Daniel Knopf, and C. Brian Brown, as well as authors new to the show like Mark Nixon, Caitlin Marceau, Neil Gaiman, Jane Yolen, Max Booth III, and that's just a few. Also, we'll be featuring new artists in addition to our beloved Maddie Holiday von Stark. This episode that you just listened to, the artwork was created by our good friend Stephen Matico. Also, remember to share the terror. Share the show. Help us grow. And if you write or create art, do get in touch at submissions at thewickedlibrary.com. Lastly, starting next month, we'll be putting out a monthly newsletter featuring news and more, and every month we'll be giving away a great Wicked prize. Sign up at thewickedlibrary.com and get your Wicked Library card. Thanks again for listening, and here is Jessica McHugh. So today we have Jessica McHugh. Jessica was the author of our two stories for today of Human Symphonies and Tarnished Treasures. So, Jessica, you write a lot of these things. <laughs> a lot of short stories? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you actually you had a challenge. Uh, was it last year or the year before? Yeah, uh, I did the A Story a Week challenge. So I wrote a, a total of 53 uh, stories just for the challenge because I'm an overachiever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one I'm more. One of and, uh, and, and I had to write more stories that year, obviously for stuff that was already under deadline or contracted. So it was an upwards of like 60 or 70 some stories I wrote last year. And it was, um, it was a pain in my ass, but it was, it was seriously fun and, and cool. And I'm glad I'm not doing it this year. <laughs> That's fantastic. So did any of these, did either of these stories come out of that? Uh, yeah, of Human Symphonies was was part of that challenge. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess, uh, yes, Tarnished Treasures was. It was originally called Off Island with the Beasts. Yeah, they were both parts of it, actually. <laughs> well, that's very cool. That one was obviously something with a with a prompt, so that was always easier for the challenge, being like, okay, I need to write this thing for a scary place. And I did actually, when we were submitting to that anthology, they said, uh, take the three places you want the most and write up a little blurb of what the story is going to be about. And sent it to us, and we'll select you for one of them. Well, since I was doing that story challenge anyway, I just decided to go ahead and write all three stories. Well, there you go. You may as well, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, and I ended up hoping that they would choose the one set at Discovery Island, which they did, uh, because the other two stories were kind of terrible. Oh. <laughs> they were, I mean, I'm sure I, uh, there's something there. There's yeah. something salvageable in those stories. I just ended up. 
uh, getting, you know, I think there was the first one. I ended up getting halfway through it, and I'm like, this just isn't going the way I wanted it to. Yeah. <laughs> and just ended up writing a really shoddy ending to tie it up. And I'm like, I'll fix that later. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I guess it should be kind of inspiring to anybody out there that wants to write to hear that even someone as prolific as you still goes through the same process of writing something, the first draft that you're not entirely happy with and yeah, continuing totally. to polish it through successive drafts. Absolutely. And, and yeah, that tarnished tre- treasures went through uh, like three different, you know, reformings of the story. And it was, uh, it was one of those where I had to cut, oh gosh, it was something like 3000 words. Oh, wow. From it. And it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was like nine o'clock um, New Year's Eve, and I was going through like cutting one word from every sentence I could, yeah, just to get it down to the word count. And I wouldn't let myself celebrate New Year's Eve <laughs> until I had <laughs> submitted this story. And your other story of human symphonies, right? I don't know what inspired it at all. It just you know they come; it, these ideas come to you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely tried for the Astoria Week to. Um, have some kind of prompt just because it made it a lot easier. Yeah. Or what I would often do is go to current submission calls and and pick a theme to write to, even if I wasn't going to submit it. It's a great idea. Well, it had a very Lovecraft feel to it. Oh, thank you. Well, it it went through a couple of uh, different different edits where it was um, it was originally uh, like outer space kind of thing. Then I saw a submission call for a, a Lovecraftian magazine or anthology, and I was like, well, this could easily change. So that, that lended itself very well to that. So even if even if it doesn't get accepted for that call, and I, I like that story a lot. It makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. Thank you so much for, uh, for putting it on the show. Absolutely. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. I have to say, Lovecraft has kind of like this strange, well, and Lovecraft has like a high <laughs> strangeness factor to it that it's almost like an otherworldliness that goes throughout the entire theme of his stuff. Yeah, and I think modern when people are writing modern Lovecraftian works, obviously we're not going to be as uh, wordy as <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Lovecraft was, <laughs> and we're not going to describe things as indescribable, um, <laughs> unnameable. Um, but there's there's a poetry I think to Lovecraft once you take out some of those superfluous words there, um, and it, it lends itself very nicely to this kind of flowy musical type of writing. Yeah, there's there's a a certain quality to it where you know what's going on, but there's something else. Un, there's like an undercurrent there that it's almost like tough to yeah, grasp. Yeah, the eeriness of it. Yeah. Yes, I, I I love Lovecraft and and very much uh, when I started writing short stories was was very much just writing derivative Lovecraft just because I I just love that theme so much of I went somewhere saw something crazy and went crazy myself <laughs> and right. and crazy to this day. <laughs> <laughs> so what else do you have going on aside from uh, writing the spooky stories for those that don't know? Um, well, I'm, I'm still plugging away at the Darla Decker Diaries. Um, you know, like I said, the third book came out yesterday. I am, uh, I'm in the process of uh, finishing up the fourth book, the editing on it, which has been a sufficient uh, pain in my ass. Uh, it's, it's, I say this with every book I write, but this is the hardest book I've ever written. Really? <laughs> Yeah, and I always I always think the that the book I'm writing is is the is the worst and giving me the most trouble ever. And as soon as it's done, I'm like, oh, that was fun. Right. <laughs> Everything's easy in hindsight, right? Right. So this one has been um has been quite a struggle, and it's uh, the fact that I'm also editing three other novels simultaneously has certainly <laughs> not made my task any easier. That sounds confusing. But- yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, and this was supposed to be the year I took it easy, so uh, that's that's fun. Uh, Best laid plans. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm I'm working on the Darla Decker plays it straight. I just finished writing the fifth book, Darla Decker breaks the case. So I have to start editing that pretty soon. First, I have to type it up from the handwritten first draft, which is always fun. And um, just doing a working on uh, my novel from the Herald's Wearied Eye, which is being re-released by Double Life Press uh, sometime this year. 
and uh, doing research for the sequel to Rabbits in the Garden from Postmortem Press. So yeah, very very exciting stuff there. I'm, but my my brain kind of feels a little jumbled because it's it wants to play with Darla and then it wants to go murder people. <laughs> <laughs> with Avery Norton, so yeah. Well, folks that are fans of the show are obviously familiar with your your horror and speculative fiction work. Um, and I and I guess I think you told me once that people are are surprised that you can write in both genres. Which, yeah, which I don't understand because the more I think about it, I'm like, well, most of us know how to talk to adults, and most of us know how to talk to children. Most of us yeah. used to be a child. Um, yes. So to me, it's like. It's just switching gears. It's just saying, okay, now I'm going to tell a story and the story is going to dictate who it's mm-hmm. for. Yeah. And I mean, if you, for me, it's very much about getting into the character. It's, it, I don't really confuse my stories because the characters to me are, are wildly different. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm not going to jump into Darla Decker's personality and then start talking about like dripping blood. <laughs> well, actually, she did. <laughs> Period. So. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's fantastic. Now that I talk about, now that I mention it, yes. but I mean, there are, I think there have been people who have read the Darla books and can say um, have said that they see my kind of horror influence in there. Just because I think very when you're a kid, even if you're writing something that's normal young adult. So much of, of our lives as children is dictated by the horror of embarrassing ourselves yeah. or saying something stupid or looking stupid or anything like that. So, Especially but, at that age, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Darla has a very um, active imagination as well and, and has a lot of fantasy sequences throughout the series. So sometimes it does get a little... Um, she'll have like a horrifying scenario where she imagines like the entire class pointing at her and laughing or yeah. something like that. So <laughs> Yeah. It's just a matter of what is scariest to you at that particular age. You know, as we get yeah. older, it, it takes a little more, I think to scare us, but you mm-hmm. know, that's the, the, not me. I got worse. <laughs> <laughs> it takes less to frighten you. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got more afraid of things as I got older. See that Weird. to me is prop out of everything. That is probably the thing that is the, the most surprising to me is the, the fact that you can get so dark and, and write stuff that's truly terrifying yet you have a very hard time watching or listening yeah. to a scary story or watching a scary movie. Well, I think it's because when I'm, when I'm writing horror, I own it. Yeah. You know, it, it can't hurt me because I'm in control of it, but I can't control anybody else. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, it's like the nails on the chalkboard type of thing, right? If you do it yeah. yourself, it doesn't bother you, but somebody else does it. Ugh. Exactly. And like last night I, or yesterday I came home from my, my part-time job and I was, I needed to go up, upstairs and work in the writing hut and I was kind of decompressing a little bit. And my husband put on like the top 10, like scariest Freddy Krueger kills and I was like, now I'm not going to be able to go upstairs by myself. <laughs> and he's like, Jessica, it's three o'clock. It's broad daylight. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I still, you know, I came upstairs and I'm like, Freddy's going to get me. <laughs> One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Yes, yes! <laughs> That's right. I'm such a puss. <laughs> Well, I do appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us after the reading of your two fantastic stories. This is something new we're going to do for the Wicked Library. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I appreciate you being the uh, the first for season six. I'm excited! Yay, season six! Season six. Six. So, where can folks find the Jessica McHugh if they would like to follow you or find your work or interact with you? Uh, one of the best places is uh, Facebook. I'm pretty active on my Facebook page. I think uh, most people would agree with that. I'm not exactly uh, hard to find online um, or quiet. Um, uh, <laughs> Facebook.com slash author dot Jessica McHugh or uh, I'm at www.jessicamchughbooks.com. Yeah, you can just Google Justin McHugh. I'm sure you'll find lots of stuff that you don't just, want to find. Just Google me. You'll yeah, find me. Yeah, Google me all night long. Just do it. Wait, how about that? <laughs> and, uh, of course, Amazon, all your stuff's out there. Yep, it's yep, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, iTunes, and all that good stuff. Lots lots of good ebooks to download. And I got some print books. If you ever want to buy a signed print copy from me, 
please feel free to email me, jessica.mchugh at ymail.com or hit me up on Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. And Twitter, the Jess McHugh. That's right. I was going to say Twitter. You're you're pretty active on Twitter as well. Yeah, Twitter and Instagram as well is uh, the Jess McHugh. Awesome. And of course, you can find Jessica in prior seasons of the Wicked Library. Yeah. And all the uh, fun links and everything are going to be in the show notes. So please check them out and uh, pick up copies of Jessica's work. She's a fantastic writer. Oh, thank you. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 601 of Human Symphonies and Tarnished Treasures by Jessica McHugh. Copyright Jessica McHugh, 2014-2015. Dramatic reading by Daniel Foytek. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written and performed by Anthony Rausick. A Laughing Librarian and Wicked Ways were written and performed by Daniel Foytek. All other music was written and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Sound design by Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is a Hicksunt Fabulous production. Hicksuntfabulous.com Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek.